And if this morning you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We will be in verses 1 through 3. Though in Puritan fashion, we are not going to get through even these three verses today. This will be the introduction to the Abrahamic covenant. It is almost no exaggeration to say that if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant here, the rest of the Bible is not going to make sense. This is something that is referred to over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as we will see here today. This is going to be something that is going to inform how Romans is argued. This is going to inform how Paul includes the Gentiles, that is, you and me, This is going to inform, while we're not going to get into it today as much as I will resist, why Presbyterians baptize the way that we do, and that this covenant is informing all of it. So we're going to spend a good bit of time here as we look at this, because this is an example of how God works. So I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. We're going to examine what it is that he's doing here this week. And the next week, we will look at the specifics of this Abrahamic covenant. So, listen carefully, because this is God's word for you in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, this is page 10. Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our message today. Our covenant-keeping God, we thank you for upholding your promises to us, to bring us here to hear how your promises work. And I ask that you would give us hearts that are ready to listen, minds that are quick to understand, souls ready to praise and obey you. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever stopped to think about how you have a relationship with God? I mean, we talk about this all the time in church, but have you ever wondered how this is actually possible? I mean, if you were to look at us on a cosmic scale, We are really small. We're sitting on a really small rock, hurtling through space that, as near as we can tell, is about 93 billion light years across. That's just as far as we can see. It's as far as light has gotten so far. 
And have you ever wondered how it is that you, little person, fellow dirtbag, as we talked about in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, how it is that you can have a relationship with the God who made all of that? Why does God bother? How is it not arrogant for us to assume that we can have a relationship with God? It's because of what we see here in Genesis chapter 12. This is an example of a covenant that God makes with people. And we've seen this hinted at many times so far in Genesis 3, 6, 9, and again here in 12. And what we're going to see here in 12 is this promise that he's going to make to Abraham that is going to unfold, have details added to it, have more shape and color added to this covenant over the course of chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22. This is going to take a minute to unfold all of these things and the beauty of the Abrahamic covenant. And as I said before, if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, you're going to be hamstrung as you go through the rest of the Bible. Certainly, you can have a relationship with Jesus, having never heard of the name of Abraham. But, oh, it's going to become so much deeper to you, understanding this. Paul's arguments that he makes through a good portion of the New Testament and the epistles made to the churches, you're going to understand this better. And there is going to be a depth of comfort when we see just how far God goes to uphold this promise that he makes to a random man from Ur. And how that affects us here today, random people from Silicaga. More on that next week. It's not just the New Testament that sees this covenant as important. But even as we go into the, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we'll see this referred to again and again and again. To just pick one area where we're going to see this is in the next book over from Genesis in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, when the Israelites are made slaves of Egypt, the reason why God goes to get them is what we see in Exodus chapter 2. Verses 24 and 25. Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where it says, And God heard their groaning, the people of Israel, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's the reason why he goes and gets A nation that by this point in Exodus had gone from 70 people to probably 1 to 2 million people is because of the promise he made to Abraham. We're going to see this show up again in Exodus chapter 6 when when the people are not, and it's not going so well with Pharaoh. Moses has come to him, said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, "Mm, no. And God reminds them of his covenant that he's made. What's interesting is that the covenant of Abraham doesn't come up again in Exodus until chapter 32. This immediately, what has immediately come before that was when Moses goes up the mountain 
to get the Ten Commandments, to ratify the Mosaic Covenant that's being made there, and the people worship a golden calf. And God looks at Moses and says, here's here's what we're going to do. These people, they're not getting it. This is a stiff-necked people. Why not I just destroy all of them and I'll make a great nation of you, Moses? And do you know what Moses invokes? He doesn't say, hey, we're just making this covenant here. This is terrible timing. We're in the middle of this covenant making. Let's, let's hold off from here. He doesn't. In Exodus 32, Moses brings up Abraham. And says, so you promised to Abraham that there would be a great nation. And that was God's whole point. Is to prompt Moses to say, no, I am a God who keeps commandments. I am a God who keeps promises even when my people don't. That's how our God works. If you want to understand God, then let's understand how he makes a promise. So as we jump in to Genesis chapter 12, and a theme that we'll see again and again and again in the rest of the Bible is God making promises, which is going to form our two points today. One, God forms relationships through covenants. That's important. God forms relationships through covenants. And number two, God advances his plans through covenants. So let's see how this works. So let's start. What is a covenant? We've covered this a few times, but it bears repeating. This word covenant is going to show up over 270 times in the Old Testament. This is an important concept. And at its most basic level is God is, a covenant is two parties making a promise. If we were to strip everything else back, that's essentially what this boils down to. But this is not a pinky promise on the schoolyard. This is not a business contract that you can negotiate your way out of. This is an oath on pain of death to fulfill. Now, what's interesting is that in a lot of these covenants that, that are made, not all, but in a lot of these covenants that are made, an animal is killed and split in half. And the two parties are supposed to walk in between those animals, basically saying, may God do to me as I have done to this animal if I break this promise. Now, that's an obligation, folks. We can see hints of that in how we do marriages in coming down the center aisle. It's the same concept. There is an oath, a promise that is being taken, and covenants are taken so seriously that even when they're made deceptively, they have to be upheld. We see this in Joshua chapter 9, verses 18 to 21. The people of the land that Israel is supposed to conquer trick the Israelites into making a covenant with them. Now, what they could have said was, ah, that covenant doesn't count. It was made with lies. We didn't know who we were making the promise to. We're going to destroy you. Nope. God wouldn't let them do that. They made a covenant. So they have to keep it. And believe it or not, this is actually something that God borrows from human culture. 
A covenant was something that existed that the Lord appropriated to use. This doesn't mean that, that God making a covenant isn't true. It just means that God is condescending to us, so we'll get it. He makes the same idea when he talks about us being adopted into his family. God didn't invent adoption. But he comes to, and at that point in the New Testament, in Roman law, where it says, you know how you guys have adoption? When you bring someone into the family, there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to cut that person out of the promises you've made to him. That's how I'm going to treat you. So we'll get it. And it's the same thing here with a covenant. You guys make oaths to each other where if you break it, you'll die. I'm going to make that promise to you. God didn't have to do it that way. God didn't have to establish his relationships with us through a covenant. He could have borrowed from, I don't know, a modern like purchasing order. You buy something from the store and you have a receipt. It's kind of like a legal document. But you can give that product back as long as you have the receipt. That's how God could have done it. I'll have a relationship with you as long as you satisfy it. And if you don't, I'll kick you out. He could have picked a business negotiation. Or it's like, well, I'll do these things for you if you do these things for me. And this is how... It's not how he makes the Abrahamic covenant. And we'll see as he moves forward from here. But what this shows us in short is God condescending to us. I don't use that word condescending to mean that God is being rude. But what I mean is, as one biblical commentator talked about, and you might have heard it mentioned in my prayer, is that God is stooping down so we'll understand. It's kind of like when your children look to you and say, it's like, well, are we really going to go do, go to the park and get some ice cream? And they say, pinky promise. And we'll pinky promise. That's condescending to them so that they understand that we mean business. And God is the same, giving us an assurance that he means what he says. He's giving us confidence in his promises because he's making some pretty incredible promises to us that unless it had come from God himself, it would seem nearing blasphemy to expect God to do what he has said that he is going to do. But he stoops so that we will do it, so we'll understand. He also stoops because he has to. The same commentator notes the massive chasm between us and God, not just from the fact that he's the creator and we're the creature, but he's holy and we're not. He's got to bend a long way down to get to us. But this is what he does for us and gives us confidence in his promises. Continuing here in our second point is that God determines to advance his plans using promises. This is also something that points to us how relational God is. That should strike us. It doesn't anymore because we don't come from a polytheistic culture. We've grown up in a place that, for, the, you know, for better or for worse, has embraced Christianity and a monotheistic religion. But when you look at other religions that the rest of us invent, gods are not personal. They do not care about you. 
They just want you to be quiet or just do what you need to do to get them to fulfill their needs and then maybe they'll throw you something if they feel like it. Allah does not have a personal relationship with his followers. The great Brahmin has nothing to do with his people because he isn't really a he anyway. But the fact that God decides I'm going to advance my plans through promises that I make to real people, that's a relational, personal God. How do we go from, when we look at these early parts of Genesis where everything is chaos, then he moves into Genesis chapter 12 and he says, I'm going to make this personal. I'm going to move through Abraham. I'm going to pick this as according to legend, idol maker from Ur. And I'm going to create a whole new nation of people and ultimately the Messiah through him. And then I'm going to make it possible so that the rest of the world is able to come and to approach me through the Mosaic Covenant. And I'm going to choose to dwell with my people in a tent made with hands so that people might approach And then I'm going to make sure that my Messiah is a ruler, so I'm going to make a promise to a king. And then I'm going to make a promise to my people through bread and wine. All these moments, all these promises, this is how God advances human history. And it began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve destroy the world with their sin. What are you going to come to God with? Instead, God comes to him and says, all right, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make this better. They couldn't possibly have asked that of him. This is something that the Lord chooses to do. So, what else does this mean for us? One is that we have a personal God. And I think number two, because he is so personal and makes promises to us, we should be much more prayerful than we are. We have been given access to God. He's made promises to us. And that's the thing that makes prayer possible. To ask of anything else, to pray to God without any sort of relationship is the height of arrogance, unless it is a plea for mercy which that in itself is responding in a promise that God has made. To ask God to do something for you when you don't have any relationship with him is pride. And when you do have a relationship with him and you don't bring your needs to him, that is also pride. He's given you an open door and said, I will be like a father to you. And instead, we become the children that never call. That tells us what we think about the relationship, don't we? Or what we think of ourselves. Well, no, I I have this. Even though God himself has made promises, it's like, no, you need this. You need me. And we say, ah, I don't think so. I think I've got this. Covenants tell us we don't. The distance that God has to stoop tells us we don't. And instead, we should be people of prayer that run to our Father who has stooped to make a promise to us. And it says, I want to hear from you. 
I delight to give you good things. Just ask. And so often we don't. He has stooped so far as to bind himself to you in a covenant. So let's enjoy that covenant in prayer and in speaking with him. One final thing that he gives to us in covenant is what we're about to celebrate here, the Lord's table. In these covenants, he also will give a sign of the covenant, something for us to look at, which is part of the reason why in a lot of Presbyterian churches, there isn't a lot of, there isn't pictures of Jesus because he's given us one. One that we're able to not only see, but to hold, to taste, to smell. All of our senses are involved in this sign. Because what he is telling us in this new covenant is quite something. And in fact, if it wasn't coming from God, we would truly say, that what's modeled here in the Lord's Supper is blasphemous. Because in this new covenant, God is, not will- God is not just willing to walk between the split animals, but he is willing to split his own body. In the Lord's Supper, listen here, in the Lord's Supper, God doesn't just stoop for us. He bleeds. That's what we're saying here. When he, when Jesus lifts up that cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Oh, that should send chills down everybody's spine at that table. We've heard of splitting a lamb's blood. We've heard of spilling a goat's blood. Maybe even an oxen, if things are really crazy. But we've never heard of God spilling his own blood to make a promise. Brothers and sisters, we should have, there isn't anything else God could do for you. If you want to say, well, how do I know God loves me? Right there. Right there. It's because he's made to us a promise at that level, we're able to walk through anything. If we're saying, why is God making me go through all this? Does he hate me? No, he doesn't. It's because for reasons known only to him, this is what you need to go through right now. As hard as that may be, I'm not minimizing that. I'm maximizing what God has promised to you here in this table. He says, no, I'll bleed for you. So anything else that I'm taking you through, this is for your good. And what I will ultimately redeem, that I'm going to make new. Guys, that's your God. That's, this is the God that's holding your life in his hands. This is the God that fills your lungs with air. This is the God who has invited you to prayer. He's not waited for you to be worthy. 
He's not asked you to come up the mountain. He's stooped down the mountain to bring you up. So there is no place for pride here at this table. There's no place for pride in a covenant as far down as God has had to stoop to get to you and me. There is no pride at the foot of a bloodstained cross. Saying that's what it took to make a deal with God. That's what it took to make a promise. And he was willing to do it. So if you're here today and you don't know if you're in a relationship with that kind of a God. Well, let me tell you how God has has invited you into his covenant. He's asked you to trust him and quit trusting yourself. To stop being dependent on you and your ability to figure things out, to make things right. But instead come to a Jesus who has made things right. To turn from your sins, leave those behind, and to trust in him to make you a new creature. He died to make it possible. But more than that, he was raised to show that he means what he says. That he goes to prepare a place for us, as we'll see more next week, to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham. We get to sit here today and enjoy this supper. So that's my call to you today. God's made promises to you. He has kept those promises to Abraham even to today. He's made a new covenant with you directly, which we get to enjoy. So depend on him. Pray to him. Be comforted by him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful promise. For the way that you make promises. That you make them in blood. Your blood. So I pray that we would not treat that lightly. That we would not look at this as an excuse to sin. Or to see that our sin is not a big deal. But that we would see that your grace is what makes us. That your grace is what redeems us. And that we would trust in you and be transformed by that grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.